0: Well, good morning. It is an honor to be with you all today and a great privilege. Uh, I have preached here and your pastors have preached at our church in Sharpsburg as well. And we certainly uh, consider one another, uh, sister churches, doing the good work of striving for biblical ministry here in South Atlanta side by side. And you guys are a great encouragement to me and to our church family. And it is a joy and privilege to be with you. Some of you uh, know me because I've preached here before. Some of you just know me from Turkey Bowl. And that's okay. It's all good, right? So we, we, we've been uh, blessed to be part of that as well each Thanksgiving. And uh, training for it even now uh, <laughs> for this year. Now, imagine... Uh, Growing up in Virginia, uh, my dad and I would occasionally pull the golf clubs out and he would show me things, how to swing and that sort of thing. We'd be in a park or in our front yard. But imagine I was in a park working on my golf swing and, uh, you know, duffing here and there. And then a car pulls up, maybe a big pickup truck or something, and out walks Bubba Watson. UGA grad happens to be back in Georgia. He says, John, I'm looking at you here swinging in the park and you need some help. And so I'm coming to help you. And what a a great honor and privilege that would be to have Bubba Watson help me with my golf swing. But just imagine that as he gets closer, I notice this pungent odor. And in fact, it's the smell of his breath. And it is absolutely appalling. Now, some of the worst breath that I've ever had, you have to wait till your spouse is long gone, but it's, it's a great snack. It's the ultimate snack when your wife is far away, but I like to take nacho cheese Doritos and dip them in French onion dip, which is really good, but not when anybody's around, right? So. I'm not talking about that level of bad breath. I'm I'm thinking about Bubba Watson swallowing a skunk. You know, that, that level of breath. And there he is, getting up right next to me, showing me how to hold the club, how to do my backswing properly, and get more distance on my drive. It doesn't matter how good the content that he is sharing with me. I just want to get away. And to get... Out of his presence because his breath is so bad. Now that's just a hypothetical scenario. But what we want to talk about today is when we have good content, passionate for the truth we are. And we're trying to share that with a brother or sister. But the way that we share it is so appalling that the content doesn't even matter. Because our manner drives them away. That's what we want to talk about today. Now, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Sometimes people wonder what Jesus would think about our church individually as a church. And Revelation 2 and 3 gives us some insight into what Jesus thinks about churches as he gives letters to seven first century churches in Asia Minor. The first letter is addressed to the church in the biggest city in that part of the world, Ephesus. Our Lord Jesus begins in verse 2 by saying, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So he's commending this church for their love for the truth. The church in Ephesus was a church, I think, that had some of the same virtues that we're striving to have. We love the truth. But later on, and and, well, I should say, and later on in verse 6, he says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Christians, in a politically correct culture, uh, where few sharp lines are drawn, we need to hear the Lord Jesus commending this church for hating the works and by application the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which was a group of false teachers back in the early church. And Jesus himself says, I also hate them. So it's, it's really, what does Jesus think about churches? He is... He commends churches for testing false teachers and for drawing lines and opposing them. And yet, in verses 3 through 5, look at what Jesus says about this church. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have gr- not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Basically, Jesus is saying that it's great that you're passionate for my truth. But you have lost your love, your first love. Now, usually when I think of that, I hear it, hear people talk about meaning our love for the Lord. But if you notice the next word, the next verse, he says, therefore, repent and do the works you did at first. This probably doesn't just mean our our vertical love for the Lord, but also our horizontal love for people. Now, think about this application Jesus is saying I'm thankful that you are truth-loving a truth-loving church. However, if you're not a people-loving church, you need to repent. In fact, he says if you don't repent, I'm going to come and snuff out your lampstand. Now Revelation is filled with a lot of symbols and some of them are very difficult and I don't have them all figured out, but I'm always glad when the Lord tells us what the symbol means. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 20, you see that the lampstands represent the church itself. So I want you to think about the implication of Jesus' words. He's basically saying, if you don't repent of being unloving toward me, toward people, I'm going to remove you as a church from the biggest and most prominent city in the ancient world. It would be better, this is Jesus saying it, to have no church than to have a church passionate for truth that doesn't love people. It's a very strong word. Now, in no way do I want you to hear me saying that we should downplay our love for the truth. Not at all. However, we must always upplay our love for people. We've got to speak God's truth in love, as Howard just read from Ephesians 4, 15. So I want to talk about graciousness in our speech. What exactly is gracious speech? Gracious speech is when we have words and tones marked by pleasantness. Kindness, the will to help and to encourage and to convey regard. It's having a desire to be a blessing to the person that you're talking to. Clifford Pond said, Graciousness is an absence of deliberate aggravation and any kind of rabble-rousing. It is impregnated with courtesy, love, humility, and transparent sincerity. So it's not being harsh and critical and judgmental. It's when we have the good of others in our hearts as we communicate with them. Now, sometimes we have to say hard things. It's absolutely true. Suppose you've got a friend that's stubbornly in sin and you've tried to be gracious and you just have to say, that's a sin. You've got to repent of that or warn a false teacher Sometimes we have to be clear and firm, but that's not the same as as being harsh necessarily. And it's, it's really important to distinguish that. Ken Sandy, who wrote that wonderful book, The Peacemaker, he said, of course there are times when you must speak to others in a firm or even blunt manner, especially if they've refused to pay attention to a gentle approach and are persisting in sinful behavior. Even so, it is wise to take a gentle approach first and get firmer only as necessary. There's also a place for righteous indignation against those who've hardened themselves into heresy and hypocrisy. We think of our Lord Jesus himself and some of the strong, firm, clear things that he said to the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospels. But even then with Jesus There seems to be a gracious intent within the firm rebuke. The rebuke of Jesus is given in order to help the person in sin to stop or to stop heading down a foolish path, not to harm the person that he's rebuking. I think about when we've got four kids, our son Josiah is here with us, a couple are, our two oldest are in college and uh, Chloe is, is back at faith this morning. And uh, you, can, you can think of those kids sometimes when they're little running out into the street, not looking and traffic is coming. And I might have had to speak firmly and clearly to my son or my daughters. Hey Chloe, stop that. Turn around right now. Get out of the street. But what is my goal in being clear and firm? It is nothing but for the good of the person that I'm talking to. It's to get her attention and bring her back. I am not being self-righteous and looking down on my daughter who's running in the street when a big truck is coming. I'm not being unnecessarily harsh I'm being clear because my heart is to be a blessing to her, to save her life. Christian communication must never be self-motivated, but marked by graciously building up other people based upon their needs. Now, in the related virtue of gentleness, uh, biblical counselor Paul Tripp commented, gentleness means I don't damage the very person I'm seeking to help. Gentleness doesn't mean compromising the truth. Rather, it means keeping the truth from being compromised by harshness and insensitivity. So this morning, what I want to do is is look at 10 ways to cultivate graciousness in our hearts. 10 ways plus 1 to cultivate graciousness in our hearts. You guys are very good students, so I'm going to give you a bonus way at the end, all right? All right, this is just pure application from Scripture, from the Scriptures we've looked at and other places we're going to draw from. Number one, appreciate the gospel. So if we know we have to be gracious, we love the truth already, but we need to pursue graciousness. Number one, appreciate the gospel. The subtitle to Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, is A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. And in seeking to resolve conflicts, Sandy wisely notes the vital place of graciousness, which he says originates from a continual recognition of the grace received from God. Now listen to this. This is from The Peacemaker. Peacemakers are people who breathe grace to others in the midst of conflict. Since we cannot breathe out what we have not breathed in, this process hinges on our moment-to-moment relationship with God. We must continually breathe in God's grace by studying and meditating on His Word, praying to Him, thanking Him for His mercy, rejoicing in our salvation, worshiping Him, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and enjoying the fellowship of other believers. As we are filled with His grace we can then breathe it out on others by confessing our wrongs, bringing them hope through the gospel, lovingly showing others their fault, forgiving them as God has forgiven us, and manifesting in our words and actions the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When even one person in a conflict is faithfully breathing out this kind of grace, others will often receive God's grace through us. As they do, they are less likely to be defensive and more inclined to listen to our concerns. Isn't this what Jesus taught as well? Think about Matthew 18. You can look there for just a moment. Matthew 18 is where Jesus tells that parable of the guy who was forgiven a lot, but didn't want to forgive the other guy who owed him a little bit. You remember that one? the parable of the unforgiving servant. And we see in verses 21 and 22, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven in other translations. You, You think about, the conclusion, the punchline of the parable that you're familiar with in verses 32 and following. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, one observation I'll draw from this is that the forgiven servant actually had a legitimate issue with the guy who owed him money. And we're used to hearing uh, the huge debt that the master had forgiven the servant of and the teeny tiny debt that the forgiven servant was owed but the teeny tiny debt was actually 100 denarii according to the text and you remember a denarius was a day's wage for a common worker in the ancient world that's 100 days wages that's almost like a third of your annual salary was owed this guy it was a legitimate grief that he had It was just nothing in comparison to what he had been forgiven from. Our Lord says he expects his followers to treat other people out of the overflow of the super abundant grace that we have received from him. So first appreciate the gospel. Number two, recognize that God is at work. Recognize that. That God is at work. In every possible situation that you could be tempted to be ungracious. So just think of, your, think of a situation for you. Some situation that you could be tempted to be ungracious. Maybe it was with a spouse. Maybe it was with a child, a neighbor, a coworker, an extended family member. Some situation you could be tempted to be ungracious in. God is at work in that situation. What's God doing? Well, one of my favorite John Piper quotes is, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. I love that quote. It comes up a lot, actually. It's, it's so good. God's doing all kinds of things in this situation, and you don't even know what he's up to. So even when you are 100% sure that you are right about your situation and it is justified for you to fire out your answer, consider maybe there's things happening that you don't know about. Like Job and Job's friends. Job's friends said a lot of good things to Job. But Job's friends were completely wrong in what they said to Job. Why were they wrong about their accurate, true statements? Because they didn't know what God was doing. God was doing something beyond their imagination. So even though they were firing out what they thought was true in Job's case, they were completely wrong because they, they forgot God is at work here. God's doing business with the devil behind the scenes. And I didn't even know. Maybe that's the case where you're being tempted to be ungracious. Just just take a half step back and leave room for God to be at work. Number three, remember that God changes hearts. God changes hearts. Uh, one of the most convicting passages to me in the bible second 2 timothy 2:24 2, through 26 which says and the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. One summer, I worked construction back in uh, Virginia, where I grew up, and it was kind of a rough atmosphere. You know, construction's kind of has a reputation for having some people with some flowery speech. And uh, my poor ears, I had to go and, you know, listen to Winnie the Pooh at night, you know, just to to calm down from all that I had heard that day, you know. And uh, one day I got to work with a Christian foreman and I thought, oh, this is going to be so much better. I'll be doing the same grunt work, but at least I'm not going to have to hear the filth from this guy's mouth. Well, you know what happened? He had a filthy mouth too. And I said, wait a minute. It was just a couple of us, so it wasn't inappropriate. I wasn't like calling him out or something. But I said, sir, why are you using the same kind of language that I'm hearing from everybody else? He says, oh, I have to. He says, the guys I work with will not respond if I don't cuss at them. And I thought, well, that's disappointing. You know, <laughs> that, that's But you know, it comes from a mindset that it's our job to make people change. And sometimes if we're correcting somebody else, maybe they're wrong, legitimately wrong. I think my intensity as I bring the heat and correction is going to make a difference. But it's not me that does the changing. It's God that does the changing. They're captured by the devil. It's God who changes hearts. My job is to faithfully speak the truth in love and let God do his job. In his book, Encouragement How Words Change Lives, Gordon Cheng compared God's work in someone else's heart to God's work with farmers in the harvest. We are planting and watering, but God, through his Holy Spirit, is giving the growth. Unless God's Holy Spirit opens the heart of the person to hear and receive the message, our words will be useless no matter how true they are or how cleverly we express them or how angry or loud or sharply we express them. We can't reach inside a person and change their heart for them. God's Spirit can. As he does so, the word can take root and grow and lead to changed lives. We are fellow workers with God. Number four, a fourth way to help cultivate graciousness is to appreciate or, excuse me, properly appraise the value of people. Properly appraise the value of people. One time I had an opportunity to meet Sonny Perdue when he was still the governor of Georgia. And I thought, this was, this was really neat. And even though it was quick and informal, I was on my best behavior. I was watching, stood up straight, you know, did all the things mom taught me, you know, look him in the eye, give him a good shake, and, uh, you know, talk very clearly and politely and respectfully, because he was the governor of our state. And it was a neat opportunity for me. Sometimes we talk freely and casually, and gruffly with people that we don't have that respect for. We don't really see them as super valuable. But the Lord does. And if we had the mindset that our brother or sister was super valuable, I think we would be on a better behavior as we interact with them. Two different times, in 1 Corinthians 8 and romans 14 both are talking about gray areas or controversial areas the bible doesn't exactly specify meat offered to idols so different christians have different opinions about that by the way let me just step aside for a second i think that god created gray areas on purpose Because if he wanted to spell it all out, is it okay to drink alcohol? Is it not okay? How much is it? You know, if he wanted to spell it out, he could have given us a bigger book. I think he gave us some of these things where he gave us some principles and said, you guys work it out so that we will have to love each other. Even when two godly Christians come to different convictions about an area. Anyway, that's an aside. All right, back to our our sermon. All right two times in this passage and just for the sake of time i'll just tell you where they are 1 corinthians 8:11 and romans 14:15 it uses the same phrase when it's talking it says and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom christ died two times the brother for whom christ died Basically, how precious is the weakest Christian in the body of Christ? What does Jesus think about their value? Then you think about what Jesus taught about stumbling blocks. One of these weak children, probably someone with childlike faith, but he said, don't cause one of these weak children who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for you if what was hung around your neck? Millstone, and you were thrown into the depth of the sea. What would happen to you if a millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea? You would sink. Would you sink quickly or slowly? You would sink quickly. You would go right to the bottom and you wouldn't be coming back. Jesus said, it would be better for that to happen to you than to you to cause one of my precious sheep to stumble. People are precious to Christ and sometimes we're tempted to just steamroll over them in the name of the truth. We believe in the word of God and if these knuckleheads don't get it, that's their problem. That's not the way our Lord tells us to treat our brothers and sisters. If we appreciate them more, that's going to help us. We're appraising their value the way Jesus appraises their value. Now, the verses we used are talking about Christians specifically, weak Christians, a childlike Christian. But what if they're a non-Christian? Do we have to be nice to them too? Well, of course, if we think about it, non-Christians are spiritually dead sinners in need of the exact same grace that Christians have found. Yes, they deserve God's punishment, but no we should not be trying to give them a foretaste of the condemnation that they will receive through our attitude. They need Christ, and we need to treat them with gentleness and respect. Remember, that's even in 1 Peter 3, when it it talks about setting Christ apart as holy in our hearts, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. These are the guys who are trying to persecute them. And you still need to be gentle and respectful. They need the grace of God like you've received the grace of God. Number five, a fifth way to cultivate graciousness in our hearts is to become a better listener to become a better listener. Now, listening helps in a lot of ways in our conversations with other people. First, it shows respect for the person in the conversation. It puts us in the mindset of respect if you're intentionally being a good listener. Uh, David Pallison, the wonderful biblical counselor, uh, says the first part of the process looks easy. You have little choice in the matter. You listen. Here's the hard part. You do have a choice about how you listen. Listen well. Don't go numb. Don't just go along. Don't get irritated. Don't run for the exit. Listen so you'll understand. Understand so you'll be able to talk with well-aimed words of life so you'll know how to love. It's great. We want to be respectful, careful, and a good listener. So, again, we're trying to cultivate graciousness. So, imagine yourself in a situation where you're tempted to be ungracious or harsh or critical or judgmental. Now, think all right, what's the place of listening? All right, it's going to make me more respectful. Instead of trying to fire back, plan my re- response, you know, all right, they've got a couple of points, but I've got some better points, and I'm going to keep listening. Keep listening. Be respectful. Listening also helps you understand people better. When you know the background, the concerns, and the questions behind the comment, that changes your tone and your response. For example, um, early in my Christian life, back back in back home, I, I worked in a Christian bookstore. Remember those? They used to exist. Anyway, uh, now <laughs> there's so few now. I was, Anyway, I have a special place in my heart for Christian bookstores because I worked there in high school. And God used that time even though I got into some debates with people. And my early Christian growth was debates. So that's, that's why I had to work on all this gracious and stuff. This is really all for me. You Thank you guys for benefiting of what God's doing in my life by me recounting all of these things. Well, when you get into debates with other people, sometimes you're just lining up your ammunition, your Bible verses, and you're just going to fire them out with your Bible gun. Well, one of the topics that I debated a lot early is, can a real Christian lose their salvation? And some people are very passionate about their views of this, and they pull their verses out, and you pull your verses out, and you kind of debate it out. Well... What I'm saying here is, if we listen to their concern, listen to the heart, not just the facts that they're giving you, but listen to their heart behind the facts. You know, there are some people who really believe, so I, I believe a real Christian can't lose their salvation, okay? You can debate me afterwards and I'll be nice to you, all right, but <laughs> by God's grace, um, But suppose a person thinks that a Christian can lose their salvation and they think if you believe that a person can't lose their salvation, you're basically saying that they can live however they please and just go off the deep end spiritually. And that's their burning concern, just riotous living. And they don't want people to just live any old way. They want them to live for Christ. And so that's... They believe you can lose your salvation and that's the burden behind their belief. Well, if I listen between the lines and hear their burden, I can assure them that in no way do I believe we should just have a free-for-all to live however we want to. The grace of God motivates us to live for Christ. And I would want to communicate that. And I have to listen though. That's, listen, if you think about it, suppose I didn't listen and I line up all my verses and I just fire them out and they line their verses and fire them back. What have we accomplished? Does it really usually change a person's mind when you shoot machine gun like verses at them? I know in my experience, and I've had a lot, it doesn't usually have much effect, positive effect. It does have effects, but not usually positive. So listen well. Helps you understand the other person better. It also, if you listen, it provides time to pause and consider the conversation. What is that person really saying? How should I best respond to their point? What would God have me say? Is this the best time to respond? How would God want me to say it? Listening helps you pause. Roger Nicole cautioned, rather than preparing ourselves to pounce on that person the moment he or she stops talking, we should concentrate on apprehending precisely what the other person holds. Another way that listening helps us become more gracious, and it's basically what Roger Nicole is saying is, it helps you express the other person's point of view a good goal if you're if you're passionate about the truth and you're having a debate with somebody is to be able to express the other person's view in a way that they would say, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Pastor Howard and I were having a talk not too long ago and we were talking about a controversial view and we both said, you know, this is a view that is often caricatured. People say, well, if you believe that, you must mean this. And we both agreed how that is not helpful. That is not helpful. If you, if you say, well, you must believe this. And the other person would say, that's, I I don't believe that at all. Uh, We need to listen, hear what the other person is saying so that we can say, all right, here's what you believe. Tell me if I'm right. And you spit it out. And they say, wow, that's even better than I can say it. That's a great goal. That's a wonderful goal. Proverbs 18.2 A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. A fool never listens well because he or she doesn't love other people. Instead, they just spout off their own ideas and assumptions because fools are obsessed with themselves. Sixth way to cultivate graciousness is to think about the practical outcomes. Think about the practical outcomes. Now, what does that mean? It means this you're getting ready to engage in a controversial issue. What do you want to happen? What do you want the result to be when all the dust settles? How do you want it to go? Do you want to win? Do you want them to change? Do you want them to be open? Think about the practical outcomes. Now, what is going to get you to the practical outcome that you want? Like if I know I'm going to have a controversy and I want to keep loving that person and help that person and be a blessing to the other person, what's the best strategy to get me to the best outcome? Proverbs, again, gives us some wisdom on this matter. Proverbs fifteen one, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 15.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16.21, The wise of heart is called discerning. And sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Now, I know my goal for this conversation is to be persuasive as I communicate God's truth. Well, Proverbs tells me how to do it. Be sweet. Be nice. Be kind. Don't be the hammer of truth. You don't need to be the hammer of truth unless you're trying to let the other person come away with a black eye and a bloody lip and bruised up. And now you kind of don't like each other. No, that's not my goal. In, in the clear-headedness of the moment, I want them to like me, but I also want to persuade them that, that we have some good things to say here. So be sweet about it. Of course, we all know James 3 are you like me? Just to hear James 3, it's convicting, right? You don't even have to talk about what it says, just the numbers. You know. It's about the tongue. It's about the fire. It's like, okay, I'm going to start a big forest fire with my little mouth and all that stuff. That's, that's the truth. We don't want to start a forest fire. Be kind. Be kind. Tame that tongue. Outcomes are better when graciousness seasons the means. In order to experience the best possible results of our conversations, we should use sweetness of speech. Here's Ken Sandy again. Strong words are more likely to evoke defensiveness and antagonism. And once the conversation takes on this tone, it is difficult to move to a friendlier plane. Isn't that the truth? Listen to that again. Strong words are more likely to evoke defensiveness and antagonism. And once a conversation takes on this tone, it is difficult to move to a friendlier plane. Someone said arguments are 90% about tones and 10% about content. I don't know if that's exactly right, but it makes a good point. Number seven, seventh way to cultivate graciousness is to think before speaking. Think before speaking. In other words, ask yourself some pre-debate questions. My wife, Lynn, must, once made this simple but profound observation. She said, if I would just think about what I said before I said it, I would sin less. I thought, yes, thank God for my wise and godly wife. That's exactly right. I've thought that a lot of times. Think before you speak. What are some things to think about? Well, think about who you're speaking to. Think about the situation. Is what needs to be said here? Is this the right time to say it? Is this the right place to say it? Are they grumpy because they had a rough day at the office and they're hungry and you're going to drop that on them right now? Is that the best timing? What's their spiritual situation? Remember that verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That means there's at least three different categories of people that you're dealing with. The idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And they require... Three different techniques. Which one are you dealing with? Which one are you dealing with? But we know that all of them require patience. So these are good. And maybe the most important thing, when we pause and ask the pre-debate question, ask this, am I thinking about God? What would God want me to say? That, that may be the single most helpful Word of wisdom in this regard. Stop and think about God. Make sure God's in your mind. I want to please God. I want to say only what God wants me to say and I only want to say it in the way God wants me to say it. Number eight, eighth way to cultivate graciousness. Use gracious helper words. Use gracious helper words. These are simple expressions like, I think, it seems, or from my perspective. All right, that, why would you use those things? Because it basically acknowledges the speaker's awareness of his lack of omniscience. Right? Only God is omniscient. Omniscient means you know everything. The speaker doesn't know everything. And sometimes it's good, and and the people who are listening, by the way, know that the speaker doesn't know everything. But sometimes it's good for the listeners to hear the speaker say that he knows he doesn't know everything. All right? So if I'm making a point, all right, this first means this, and you just better repent of your foolishness. I could go to the same verse and say... You know what? As I read this verse... It seems like this is what it's saying. What do you think about that? I'm not diminishing my passion for truth... By putting it like that. By saying, I think it means this. It seems to mean this. From my perspective... When you see this verse and this verse, this is the conclusion. When you say it like that, it softens it. I call it gracious helper words. It helps me to be gracious just to use those words. Now, sometimes people might think, well, you're, you're compromising. You're not taking a strong stand. I disagree. I'm given the exact same content. I'm dropping the exact same verses, and I'm just saying, I acknowledge I'm not infinite in my omniscience, but here's the verse, what do you think? That helps me, and in my experience, it helps other people to hear that verse a little better, okay? So you could think of some controversial issue. Some big thing you've had debates on in the past and you're right and everybody else is wrong. You think, alright, when I just go right for the jugular verse and just say, there it is. How did that work? You know, if you use a gracious helper word, okay, look, here's what the word of God says. It seems to mean this. What do you think? Or how, how do you like that? You know, from my perspective, it's this. What is your perspective on this verse? And I mean, we're not talking about playing fast and loose with the scriptures. Oh, it can mean anything you want. No, it's got a meaning. The context determines the meaning. We still believe in hermeneutics, but it's okay to say, it seems this way to me. Helps me a lot. Number nine, remember that everything is communicating. Remember that everything communicates, even when the mouth is not moving communication is happening husbands who grunt over their glowing device at the dinner table when wives are trying to explain and get insight about a difficult discipline situation that they've dealt with and the husband's face is glowing because the screen is glowing before him and he grunts and maybe says a word or something like that you might say well that husband is a poor communicator Not so. The husband is communicating very clearly. He doesn't care. He's indifferent to things that he ought not to be indifferent about. And that wife is receiving the message loud and clear. We're always communicating. We communicate with our facial expressions. We communicate with our body language. We communicate with the tones that we use. As well as the words that we use, and you know as well as I know, if your nonverbal communication contradicts your verbal communication, which one wins? Okay. So if my wife Lynn uh, says, "Okay, I'd like to go out to dinner tonight," or something like that, and and I say. Oh, sure. Great. We'll go. I'll pay. I've got money. I'd love to pay to have dinner with you tonight. (laughs) All right. Now think about it. If you just had a transcript of the words that I just said, that actually looks pretty good. Okay. I'd love to. I've got money. I'll pay. It's great. I'd love to be with you. But everything about the way that I said it communicated the exact opposite message. Like, I don't want to spend my money on having dinner with you out. Right? So when we're gracious, when we're thinking about cultivating graciousness, I want you to think, how can my mannerisms communicate graciousness? Is the tone that I'm using in this conversation helping to promote graciousness or is it promoting harshness? Sam Crabtree offers this list of benefits to a good tone of voice. He, he wrote this in a letter to a mother with several children. All right? He says, A good tone of voice wins friends. It builds confidence in the minds of others that they can trust you. It demonstrates maturity. It sweetens the ambiance, the atmosphere, the environment. It makes you easier to be around. Just by having a good tone of voice. Mary Beakey adds more detail to the simple and significant effects of nonverbal communication. She says, tone of voice and facial expressions are huge factors. They express patience, tolerance, kindness, and happiness, or a lack thereof. When mom says, come here, Brian... Her tone can convey either irritation or cheerfulness. When I'm around another person with indomitable cheerfulness, I am uplifted. I feel safe, accepted, and comfortable in his or her presence. Wouldn't it be great if we all had that effect on each other? If we wish to improve our communication skills, this is the area to begin with that will make the most impact. By simply being aware of how we sound and our impact on others, we can take steps to change. It might involve dealing with underlying issues, but that's another subject. If we shore up the self-discipline it takes to be cheerful, our emotions may just follow along. There's been a lot of funny stories over the years about speakers, of course I'm extra sensitive to these stories, with their microphone on and they didn't realize it was still on. Maybe they went to the bathroom or that kind of thing and it was going in the, in the auditorium. We need to realize it, when we think of the microphone as our nonverbal communication, it's always on. Our microphone's always on. Not just for the speakers every now and then. It's always on. You're always communicating. Number 10. Here's the last one. But I've got a bonus one for you. You've been good. All right. Number 10. Spend time with gracious people. Spend time with gracious people. My favorite proverb. I think it is. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. Basically, my summary, you become like the people you hang around. If you want to become more gracious, you can kind of blow off everything else that I've said this morning and just think of two or three gracious people and just hang out with them. And that will work. You will become like the people you hang around. Other Proverbs warn us not to spend time with angry people, lest you learn their ways. It it works both ways. But if you want to become more gracious, spend time with gracious people. Watch the way they interact. Look at the way they respond or react or don't react when this or that happens. Look at the way they interact about the truth of God's word with other people. You're going to pick it up. You're going to be like the people that you're around. Now, here's the bonus. Here's the bonus one. Okay? We've had 10 ways to cultivate graciousness. Here's a bonus Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to his example. Look to his gracious forgiveness for our lack of graciousness. He was so kind and so compassionate to undeserving sinners. Think about Jesus and the woman at the well. Think about Jesus and the man with leprosy. Think about Jesus and his interaction with the rich young ruler. Oh, can, you, can you imagine, the guy comes up and Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Oh, I I got that. Check. <laughs> Jesus, it, he, he says he loves him. He had compassion on him. He had such graciousness. Even when it came to his disciples, he was so gracious with his disciples. They were marked by slowness to understand and slowness to believe. Even though Jesus regularly pointed out their small supply of faith and their small supply of understanding, he did not kick them out of the school. Instead, he patiently cared for them with further instruction and more opportunities to make spiritual progress. I love the way J.C. Ryle put it when he was describing how the Lord dealt with his disciples. He said, It was nothing but unchanging pity and compassion, and kindness, and gentleness, and patience, long-suffering, and love. He does not cast them off for their stupidity. He does not reject them for their unbelief. He teaches them as they're able to bear. He leads them on step-by-step as a nurse does an infant when it first begins to walk. We have been treated so kindly... By our Lord Jesus. We have experienced this. Just like the disciples have experienced this, you have experienced this, and I have experienced this. And he expects us to treat other people accordingly. Treat other people out of the overflow of the grace that he has given you. Now listen, our churches are sister churches. Our churches have Bible in the name of them. How many times have you had to answer that what's a bible church anyway we get it we have to answer that question too all right we love the truth and i think it's a great thing you love long sermons you love in-depth biblical expositions through books of the bible there's a couple of you that probably have composed emails to justin about this topical preacher that he brought in (laughs) even this morning you've already sent it (laughs) We love that. We feel ripped off by 30-minute sermons. Don't give us that sermonette. We love God's truth. We want the Bible. Give us the word of God. You and I will never be in danger of going soft. I believe that. You're not going to turn into mushy, sloppy, spirituality, sentimentality. We ought to be full of God's truth. But are we full of God's love? Do we always strive to speak God's truth in love? It is a very big deal to Jesus. I I can't emphasize that enough. I am so struck by the example of that church of Ephesus. I will snuff out your lampstand if you don't repent. I mean, I just bring that up again just to say, it's, it's a big deal to Jesus. It is not enough for us to be truth monsters. He wants us to be passionate for the truth. And I think by God's grace, we are. But we must continually elevate our graciousness as we communicate that truth day by day to one another and to the world around us. As we want to speak God's truth in love, that we would strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ, who was full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so humbled and amazed by the gracious example of Jesus. He did not compromise at all, and yet he was so kind to his disciples and even to the unbelieving ones that he interacted with. He did not drop the hammer immediately. And even when he did speak firmly to the scribes and Pharisees, it was for their good, and for the good of those who heard in the the crowds. It was not because he was being self-righteous, or unnecessarily critical or judgmental, our Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us to really get how important the truth is. We know that we don't get it as much as we ought to, but you've, you've helped us to see the importance of the Bible. I know this church stands for that, and our church strives to stand for that, and we see this as your goodness and kindness to us to open our eyes to the importance of the truth. But Father, please help us to always speak the truth in love. Help us not only to have the heart of Jesus for the Bible, but the heart of Jesus for people. And help us to value people like, like it says, the brother for whom Christ died. Help us to see one another in that way and treat one another with that kind of respect and concern because they're so precious in your sight. Father, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your forgiveness. Even as some of us maybe have been a little uh, convicted, even by the words we've reflected on today, I thank you that the gospel gives us comfort that our Lord died on the cross for our sins, not just the sins before our salvation, but even the sins after our initial salvation and even when we have spoken the truth in a harsh way. Thank you for the death of Jesus being so powerful and the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all of our sins. Please help us now to treat one another and the others around us out of the overflow of the grace with which you've blessed us. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.